We'll be reading this morning from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagernes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Lori. We are continuing in our romp through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse. And so if you'll turn to uh, Mark chapter 3, we're going to be there in just a minute. Um, I think that uh, I want to I pray before we get started and very specifically just uh, we continue to be reminded, it seems, and it just uh, especially this last week, really, uh, everywhere uh, we turn, we're reminded that uh, in other parts of the world, uh, the 21st century is very much like the first century was for Christians. They're facing uh, persecution, the likes of which we really never experience. We, we often think that we're being persecuted because we get a dirty look or somebody uh, doesn't want us to publicly mention our faith or, or whatever that might be. And I understand that. That's difficult. But there are Christians all over the world who are being killed for their faith. They're being executed for their faith. And so uh, let's just take a minute to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in those places where it really is like the first century in many respects to be a, a Christian. Lord God, we, uh, we pause for just a minute in our study of the, the Gospel of Mark to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing things that they're facing horrors that we have never faced and that uh, we can't even begin to imagine what it's like and yet they stand firm firmly rooted in the gospel and for that we're thankful and we know from history that as horrific as this is this only serves to strengthen the body and we know that Uh, Our existence on earth is temporal and that you provide eternal existence and eternal life with your son. And so that is really the only place that we can place our hope. That's the only hope that we have. We place our hope in so many different things. And, And those are good things that we place our hope in. But the only hope that is real and genuine and eternal is the resurrection of your son. So thank you for that. We pray for that. God, we're reminded also that we are constantly looking for unconditional love from things that 
cannot possibly give us unconditional love, and then we're disappointed with that. And so, again, we look to your Son. In all these times, we must continue to keep our eyes firmly focused on Jesus. And we're reminded that we are to be able to boldly and confidently come to your throne of grace to present our requests, and so we do that today. We request that you would continue to keep us strong, keep us strong in prayer for our brothers and sisters. And God, we pray for them as they face every single day uh, very challenging and difficult circumstances. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue, like I said, in the book of Mark. And last week we ended what scholars have called the conflict texts in Mark. These are uh, these are the little pericopes between Mark chapter, one verse, uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 1, and Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where Jesus and the professional religious people have these verbal sparrings. And it ends in verse 6 of chapter 3 <clears throat> with the most unlikely of, of uh, partnerships, the Herodians and the Pharisees getting together to plot the destruction of uh, Jesus. And so now we enter into these three paragraphs today, which some people would call summary paragraphs in the book of Mark. And it's true, they're, they are summary in, in their content, um, but don't let that fool you in terms of the depth of the material that we can also find here in these paragraphs. There's a, there's a lot of really important stuff. And, and we would say this about these three paragraphs, that the big idea today that we're going to be looking at is that Jesus gathers and sends his people. Jesus gathers and sends his people. That's our big idea. I will tell you that that, uh, that is the truth. That's, that is the big idea, and I like that, but I, 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 like, I, I like putting it a little bit different way. I, I, I think there, that there's a way that we can get a little bit deeper uh, in the meaning of what's happening in these three paragraphs. And so I would say it like this. It's a little bit more wordy, but I'm a wordy guy, so I like it like this. I, th- this is what Jesus calls ordinary sinful people like you and me to reflect an extraordinary and holy God. I would say that's a, that's a little bit deeper way of saying what's going on here. Yes, he's gathering and sending his people, but he's calling ordinary and sinful people just like you and me. These disciples we tend to revere. And what I hope you see today is that these disciples were no different than us. And yet Jesus calls them. He makes them disciples and then he sends them out to reflect an extraordinary and holy God. And that is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is an amazing thing that that's what it does. It doesn't look around for the most worthy people, the most perfect people, the most sanctified. You've got to be sanctified before you come into the Jesus party, okay? No, it, it, Jesus goes specifically to people who are thoroughly unsanctified, and he makes them disciples, and he conforms them to his... That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's, that's what we're involved in. It's really cool. So let's, let me reread that first paragraph, and we'll kind of dig into that, and then we'll get to the last two paragraphs. Mark writes, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. That would be the Sea of Galilee. So they're still up in the area of Galilee. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and uh, Judah and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out. 
You are the Son of God. And Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. So this, I'm going to start kind of in the middle there, that, the whole thing with a boat. That's interesting. Uh, Mark tells us that they were crowding around Jesus and pressing into him in such a way uh, the, the, the Greek language is actually more emphatic. Um, it, it, it's doing it in such a way that they were, <clears throat> they were not only entering Jesus' personal space and then his intimate space, which would be 0 to 18 inches, but they were pressing on his flesh. They, they, they were not only in his intimate space, but they were touching him. They were pressing on him in such a way that this would, a, a, a mortal would be scared and intimidated by what's happening here. It's kind of funny to me because uh, Christian culture, I've noticed, seems to have a lot of very well-meaning, very well-meaning paintings and pictures of a, of a very relaxed, neatly coiffed, beautifully complected Jesus sitting with a lamb in his arms and adoring children at his feet. You know, plenty of room for the Messiah. No, uh, nobody is in his personal space and everybody is polite to him. And yet, what we get from the Gospels is really not that picture. The picture is that people, I, I hate to use this analogy, but he's like, he's like a, a rock star that needs people around him to protect him. He's, he goes out into the open and people just absolutely press up and crush against him. When we get to chapter 5 of Mark, we're going to see another story uh, just like this. And so he had to use the boat just to get separation. He, he, he said, arrange for a boat so that I can get in the boat and push away from the shore. That They're going to have to stay on the shore. And now I'm able to, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, now I'm able to do what I, what I primarily came for. His primary mission was to come and proclaim the gospel of God, the good news of God, and to usher in the kingdom of God of which he is the king. His primary mission was his message, his teaching, the the understanding that he is the king and that he's going to be the crucified king who defeats Satan, sin, and death so that we can give our lives to him. That's the primary message. That's the message of the Messiah. And he is the Messiah. But the people have a different vision of who the Messiah should be. And again, you and I would have the same vision. We have the same vision of the Messiah. We want the Messiah to to fix us and to make our lives here on earth better. And we have this idea that this is kind of all there is. And so we would press up against anybody that we thought had the power to make our lives easier and more comfortable here. That would be their vision and even our vision of the Messiah. But Jesus says, that's not my vision and that's not my mission as the Messiah. And in fact, Mark mentioning all of these geographical places where the people were coming from is also part of the, the true God vision of what the Messiah is. The, the fact that he mentions these places is interesting. He, he mentions, obviously, Galilee and, and Judah and Jerusalem, which are to the south. But then even further south, he mentions Idumea. This is, you're going at least 100 miles south now to mention that. And then the, the area west of the Jordan, this is the, what's known as the uh, region of the Decapolis. There's 10 different cities in that area. It's a very large, I'm sorry, the area east of the Jordan, east of the Jordan, and, and known as the Decapolis, very large area. And then he mentions even Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are way to the northwest up along the Mediterranean coast. 
And so he's mentioning all of these places. And it's interesting that all of these places used to be under the rule of Israel back in the, in the glory days of Israel as a, as a world power during, during some parts of the book of Judges they had all of those areas. Certainly during the reign of King David and the reign of King Solomon, they, had, they, they were in control of all of those areas. All those areas were under the reign of Israel. But it's not just the geography. The geography he mentions also talks a lot about the people who were coming from those areas. That, that's important for us to realize because they're coming from uh, Judah and Jerusalem, which certainly means that th- these are Jews that are coming. But also from Idumea, that area south of Judah and Jerusalem was known to have quite a few people who, uh, quite a few Jewish people who had intermarried with other races. And so they were for for the for the Jew to look upon them as an equal would have been not possible because they've intermarried now with other nationalities and so they're actually like like second class citizens according to the Jew yet those people were coming up to see Jesus these mixed races and then and then when you talk about east of the Jordan you have both Jews living there but also a much larger population of Gentiles completely non-Jews people like mostly mostly like you and I in this room just completely non-Jewish, and then certainly Tyre and Sidon were, were all Gentiles. And so what, what's happening is all of the nations are being gathered here. Um, Mark is, is giving us a picture, if you will, of Genesis and of Revelation, uh, of the unity that all the nations have when, when there is no corruption and there's no sin. He's giving us that bookend picture of Genesis and Revelation. Isaiah 49, the prophet of Isaiah. Now, this is going back 700 years before Jesus. The prophet Isaiah in in chapter 49 says that God's plans for the Messiah are not just that he's going to raise up Judah or Israel. That's not it. That's not enough for God. In fact, he says that in addition to Israel, God God says that that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be a light to all of the nations. And that God's salvation will reach the ends of the earth. It's why you and I are here this morning. Do you understand that? There's the Messiah more than 2,000 years ago. That's why we're here. But even Isaiah 2,800 years ago was saying, essentially, we would be here worshiping the Messiah. And again, in this passage, we're also reminded of Jesus' authority. His authority. Listen, it's great that Jesus loves us. It, it, it's one. It, it, can I get an amen, Jesus? Okay. But here's what I want you to see. If he loves us without any authority or power, it, it, it's just another person who loves us. What makes his love so special is the authority and the power that he has. He's the king. He's the Son of God. He's divine. And we see this in this Mark describing yet another uh, interaction or series of interactions with the people with the unclean spirits, the people uh, who have a demon. And, And it says that the demons saw Jesus and they fell before him. And the language there is is really important to understand. The word that's translated saw there is not the the basic everyday Greek word for see or or to just glance at. It's not blepo, it's theorean. Theorean is a deeper word that means to see 
and to fix on and to fully understand and comprehend what you see. So these unclean spirits fully understand and comprehend who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. They proclaim that and the authority and the power that He has. He is Lord. He's God. He's created. He, creator. He has complete authority. And so they fall before Him. It's an acknowledgement of authority. And literally, that Greek word means to prostrate self in homage to a superior. So the unclean spirits knew who Jesus was. They even believed that He was God. But here's, this is really interesting and kind of even a little bit tricky for some. They believed He was the Son of God, but, but he, they didn't have a belief that, was, that gave them salvation. James chapter 2, verse 19 says that the demons believe in God and they shudder. There's a belief in God once you finally realize who God is that, that isn't salvific. You don't, you're not placing your faith in, in Him. You're not giving your life to Him. You just suddenly realize, oh yeah, He is God. I'm still not interested, but oh yes, He's God. And that is going to frighten you. And it would frighten me too to, make the, to have the realization that God is very real and He's holy and I'm not. And still, I'm going to walk away. That should still frighten us. And that's, that's the situation the demons are in. But the person who believes in a saving way, that person is now going to start to bear fruit. That person is going to, as Romans says, start to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. You're going to, you're going to become more and more like Him. There's going to be transformation, Romans 12 says. The, the word literally is metamorpheo. You, your life will, will, you'll change from, you know, the the non what is it a cocoon or what the you're going to become a butterfly and oh, that's really goofy language but you get what i'm saying you're going to change you're going to change some people say it this way um do you believe in god or do you believe god a lot of people believe in god they believe in the concept of god they might say that god is real but do you believe him do you believe jesus's claim to authority and that he's the son of god and that he's the resurrected son and that he will give you life and give it to you abundantly there's a difference between believing in god and believing god the demons believed in god but they didn't believe in a saving way and here we have again another passage where Jesus keeps the evil spirits from talking. Why is this? I mean, they bowed down to him. But even though they would bow down to him and they would speak, I guess you could say they would speak truth about who Jesus is, they'll be doing it with evil intentions. And the perception of Jesus sort of being lined up with evil spirits is going to, be, is going to create a lot of confusion and misunderstanding. So Jesus says you can't do that. We, we need to understand there is no compatibility between Jesus and demons, none whatsoever. Light always casts out darkness. Light and darkness cannot coexist in any way, shape, or form, and light always wins. Light always casts out darkness. So instead, Jesus calls his people. As flawed as we are, he calls his people to represent him because he's the one who enables us and empowers us and again we see that jesus is healing people physical healing and you and i desire healing too i you know I, i'm 56 and i'm i'm a i'm a runner and i'm having i got all kinds of physical issues just like any distance runner has i heard the other day uh, I, uh, mark was telling me you know physical therapist's favorite patient is a distance runner because they never quit they never give up no matter how awful their body turns out you know they just keep running you know 
And, and I wish I were younger and I could run the way I used to, but, I'm t- but we're in, it, sin corrupted everything and my body is corrupt. And, and, and as I've said this before, gravity's going to win. I'm going to bag, sag, and drag. There's nothing else I can do about it. You know what I mean? And I would like everything about me physically healed, healed on this earth. I would like that. And I, and I know that for many of you, you have problems way bigger than just a guy who wants to run. You have really serious problems, chronic problems. And you would like healing too. And, and you look at these stories and say, why not me? We all desire to be healed, but what, what the type of healing that Jesus is really intent on giving us is the true healing that we desperately need. And that's a healing of our soul. It's a completion of our soul. It's the saving of our soul. It's, it's the resurrected life. That's what he's really going to... That's what, that's what we really need, and that's what he's going to give us. And we should rejoice and be glad in that. He, he heals these people... Not so that that's the end of the story. He heals these people in order to let them know the kingdom of God is being ushered in. It's a sign of the kingdom of God. It's, it's a foretaste of what the new Jerusalem is going to be like. It's, it's a way of saying, I'm the king. You need to look at me. It doesn't stop with your physical healing. There's something bigger and better. So the healings that he does... Since he doesn't do them for everybody, amen, they're merely a foretaste of the truth that's coming and they're pointing everybody to him, which is where we should be pointed today even. That's what's happening here. And then we get to these last two paragraphs. Let me reread those too. And so then he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother of Je- John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's a nice little historical note for Judas. (laughs) Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, the major themes so far in Mark have been these. God's uh, God's good news and the kingdom of God. The proclamation of the gospel and the kingdom of God. That's the first major theme. That's throughout this book. The second major theme is that Jesus is the king of this coming kingdom. He is the divine son of God who has all authority. And now we get introduced to a third major theme which you're going to see played out uh, throughout much of the rest of this book and especially strong in Mark chapter 8. And that is that following Jesus is important. That's what a Christian is. It's somebody who follows Jesus. We give our lives to him. We are with him, not for him, and we follow him. And and again, we see at the beginning of this, um, these two paragraphs that he went up on a mountain. And that mountain is that real high, rugged, difficult mountain to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And again, they went up there to gain separation from the people. They, they, were with, they were withdrawing. Listen, I'm all for community and relationships. You know that we preach that and we, we want you to be in an RC, a redemption community, and we need to be in relationships and all of that is important. But also there's something to be said for times of solitude when we need to just get away, right? 
We, we need that occasionally. Not all the time, but we do need that occasionally. So they're retreating. And, and this list of the apostles or the disciples you know, always starts with Peter, James, and John. You look at the other Gospels, it always starts with Peter, James, and John. They were the big three. They were the inner circle, and then there was the core of the uh, rest of them that included the other nine. And, and Jesus gives them nicknames, in a sense. Peter, in Greek, literally means rock. And then he, and he gives it the, James and John this Sons of Thunder nickname. In the Greek, it's actually, uh, it's actually a little bit trickier. It literally means thunder and lightning. So this is a little bit cheesy, but it's like Jesus and his boys, rock, thunder, and lightning. You know what I mean? It, just, it sounds a little bit like a television show, but that's what's... It, there's an emphasis placed on the names in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, you see that, that, that we get a lot of interpretations of names, that there's something going on with, with names. Now, in the rest of this, these two paragraphs, because of the language and grammar, we're going to spend some time here because it's critical to our understanding of what it means to follow or be a follower of Jesus. There's, there's some stuff going on here in the original language that we need to pull out of here. And so we'll start here. It says that he appointed 12. He appointed 12. Literally, the Greek says he made or he created 12 disciples. That's literally what the Greek says. And one of the things that we need to see here is that Jesus is not merely improving the status of these men, although that happened. It's true. Their status was improved. They're part of this yoke of this important, influential rabbi now. That's part of what happened, but that's not really all that happened. In fact, the most important thing that happened is that he brought them into existence as his disciples. They were mere mortals prior to that. He made the 12. In other words, they could not be disciples without Jesus, his calling, and his specific enabling in them, his power and authority in their lives. It's even thought by some people, some commentators, that Mark wants the reader to be reminded of Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and earth with this language here. The making of disciples is actually a divine task. I want you to hear that. The vast majority of you in this room, I know, are disciples of Jesus. You know, that's an act of God in your life. That's God working in your life. That's, that's the Lord showing favor in your life. When Jesus calls you and me, it's a divine task, and he doesn't call you and I because we bring something to the Jesus party that nobody else can. He doesn't look at us and go, man, if we... Oh, Frank has got this special talent. I really need him with me. That's not why he called me. And there's no special talent that you necessarily have that he called you because of. He enables you after he calls you. It's called grace, unmerited favor. It's, I think I mentioned it earlier. It's this idea that he unconditionally loves us. There, there's no condition in us that, that he looks at and goes, oh man, I've really got to love her. He loves because that's his nature to love and to find favor in us. He enables us, he empowers us, he gifts us, he instructs us, and he consumes us. And as a result, we really should live a life of joy and gratitude. I know things are going to interrupt us in that regard, but we should overall be living a, a life of joy and gratitude. Discipleship never consists of what we can do for Jesus, but what Jesus makes of us. I had a conversation a couple of years ago, interesting, I was sitting with this guy, and, 
and he just looks at me and he goes, I, I, I can't believe my marriage. My marriage is just incredible. He says, you know what I brought into my marriage? My college debt. That's all I brought into this marriage. And yet my wife has loved me, supported me, helped equip me, and has stood by me through everything. I brought debt. She brought grace and mercy and love. That's a gospel-centered spouse. That's a gospel-centered marriage. That's a gospel-centered understanding of how to approach relationships and life. And then it says that Jesus called to him those whom he desired. James Edwards says the Greek is much more emphatic here. It literally says that Jesus summoned. You ever received a summons? You have to go, right? He summoned those whom he willed. You see, disciples do not decide to follow Jesus and do him a big favor in doing so. Rather, Jesus' desire, his will, overtakes our will and places in us a need and a desire, a godly need and desire and a longing to give and serve rather than to consume and take. God makes us disciples so that he makes us He makes us givers and servers rather than consumers and takers. If you're somebody who is constantly consuming and taking and wondering what everybody else can do for you, we need a little Jesus adjustment there. This is how He enables us. This is is how He gifts us. I I know a lot of people who get so frustrated with Jesus because Jesus just does not see things their way. And if Jesus just saw things my way, they don't necessarily articulate this out loud, but they say enough to let us know that this is what they're thinking. Jesus needs to see this my way, and that's the only way I think it's going to work out. That's the only way it's going to work for me. And they don't ever stop to think that maybe genuine, actual fulfillment in life is to start to see things the way Jesus sees things. It's, it's really Paul's admonishment, loving admonishment in Philippians chapter 2, when he says, Do nothing, do not one thing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility consider that everyone else is better than you. That's a revolutionary thought in our world, isn't it? You're going to do nothing that's self-centered and self-serving, but rather in humility you're going to consider everybody else better than you. You've got to have Jesus in your life to be able to think that way. There's only one place that kind of power can come from, and that's from Jesus. So Paul says, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, verse 4 says. In other words, yeah, you're going to have some stuff that you're going to have to do, but remember that those things that you have to do are in relationship to everything that everybody else has to do as well. You need to consider that. And the way you do that, he tells us, is in verse 5, have the same mind in you, have the same attitude in you, Look at the world, see the world the way Jesus sees it. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's how you do it. And and consider the apostles here. I mean, think how imperfect they were and yet they changed the world. Peter, Simon, he was arrogant and boastful, pretty sure that he knew better than Jesus in just about every situation would try to tell Jesus that. There's that confrontation between the two of them in in Mark chapter 8 that's just fantastic. He even denied Jesus. There's Thomas, Thomas, doubting Thomas. He doubted Jesus. He doubted what he taught. He doubted who he was. He doubted his instruction. James and John, these are the two guys who selfishly wanted glory and power all to themselves at the expense of all the other disciples. 
You know that story. It's in a few of the Gospels as well. And Jesus just shakes his head. You guys don't get it. You know? James and John, you know, there's no I in team. I can't really imagine Jesus saying that, but I said it. Then there's Judas. You know, even God used that. Do you understand that? God even used Judas. One of the ways he uses Judas is to show the contrast between Peter, who eventually gets it and does respond, and, and Judas, who, who does. Jesus responds, I, I'm sorry, Peter responds in repentance. Judas responds in guilt and shame. And he goes out and kills himself. By the way, people ask all the time, what does Judas Iscariot mean? How come that isn't explained? Well, there's some thought. There was a town near there called Cariot. And so people thought that maybe it was just a play on the, uh, that he was from Cariot, so Judas Iscariot. But also, there's a word, Sicarius, which means dagger. Judas Sicarius. So he was dagger man, maybe. And you remember that, that some of the people that followed Jesus were zealots. They were people trying to kill people who represented the Roman government and would carry daggers around. So maybe that was it. Or maybe he was dagger man from Cariot. I don't know. But that, there's, one of those things is certainly possible. And then all the rest of the disciples, they all just cowardly ran away when Jesus was arrested. It's amazing. It's always amazing when somebody shows up with that, with that sort of um, look at what I'm bringing to you, Jesus, attitude. Look at, you know, sort of, yeah, 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 Jesus, Jesus saved me. But after all, why wouldn't he? <laughs> Apart from God, we can do nothing. He, he is the power and authority. No one is better than these guys that we're talking about here. No one. And these guys are no better than you and I. These guys are no better than you and I. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh. This is not a literal thorn. This is... This is some sort of malady that he was dealing with. Some people thought it might have been malaria. Some people thought he might have been uh, almost blind, that, that he was physically, chronically troubled in some way. So God gave, him this, God gave him this thorn in his flesh so that he would not become conceited to keep reminding him of how much he needed God. So he's given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. I prayed to God about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. You hear that? I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And what he's saying, of course, is he's strong because of the Lord. And this ends with, with um, you know, in verse 19, it says that Judas betrayed him. And then in verse 21, his family said that Jesus is out of his mind. Not only did Jesus had to con- have to contend with the opposition from the professional religious people in the government, He contended with opposition from them, but he also had to contend with opposition from his close band of brothers and even his his family, his DNA. I want you to hear this. Proximity 
does not always equate to allegiance. Proximity does not always equate to allegiance. And here's something that you and I know. We know this inherently. We know this empirically. Whatever we do, there is always going to be opposition, right? I mean, life is hard. Everything is push and pull. There's a fly in every ointment. No matter how hard you protect that ointment, flies are going to get to it. I heard one speaker even say this. Even breathing air is a competition. We're competing. I have a, com, a communication textbook that um, I use for, commun- for COM 100. Um, obviously, it's a textbook of 500 pages. I can't possibly agree with everything in it. So here's something I don't agree with. Uh, the, the, the author is talking about self-esteem and the importance of self-esteem. This is not exactly a gospel message in this book, but it's talking about self-esteem and the importance of self-esteem and how you can build your self-esteem. Five suggestions he gives for building your self-esteem. Here's one of them. Only engage in projects and challenges in which you are guaranteed success. Yeah, see, you and I hear that and we go, that is the stupidest thing that's ever been written in a textbook, right? Well, where's the challenge if you're guaranteed a success? I mean, the language itself doesn't even work, right? So here you are at work. Sorry, boss, I can only do stuff in which I'm guaranteed success. How well is that going to work? See, this is why we we, we need to be gospel-centered at the work even. We need to be gospel-centered in the marketplace. We're there with the power and authority of Jesus, and we're going to do some things that are going to boggle some people's minds. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and do risky, idiotic stuff and go, Jesus is just going to save me in this and empower me in this. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that we do not enter into the workplace or the marketplace with a spirit of fear. We enter into the workplace and the marketplace knowing that the Son of God is with us and in us and dwelling within us. That's how we enter into the marketplace. And we don't have to worry about our self-esteem and doing things that only are guaranteed success. Be gospel-centered in your job, too. So we know that life is hard, but when the opposition comes from people who we think are with us or when it comes from our own blood, I mean, that's rough, and that really hurts, right? It's harder to deal with because it's, it's less expected. Um, we, we plant a lot of churches at Redemption, and, and we always tell the church that the planting pastors, that this is just true, that, that um, 50% of the core people who go out with the church plant, 50%, half of them, who go out enthusiastically and triumphantly from the very beginning, they're sent out, 50% of them after six months of the church plant will not be at that church any longer. Just count on it. The, the people that started at Peoria, and they're already starting to siphon off many of them. That's just, that's just human nature. It's the struggle that we have with people. And not only that, within the first six months, a key leader in a church plant will rebel against the planting pastor in such a way that it requires church discipline. This is the way people are. Some people think, I, I'd love to get a, church, a job in the church where all those Christian people are. It must not be very hard there. Now, at least with Jesus, after the resurrection, his brothers, James and Jude, they came along and even wrote important New Testament letters, cleverly titled James and Jude. By the way, the irony, Jude, that, that name Jude, it's short for Judas. Isn't that ironic? Okay. We don't, we, anybody ever met a kid named Judas, by the way? Not on the top 1,000 
names for boys list or girls. It's like, be like, I know some of you will get this. It'd be like naming your daughter Gemma right now, okay? So, yeah, a couple of you are like, yeah, I gotcha, okay. Right. Yeah, but but it, was, it was a very common name. In the, and I know some of you are like, what about the Beatles? Hey, Jude. You know, even that, that's not what his name was, right? It was short for Julian. Even that kid wasn't named Jude. We stay away from that name. But it was a very common name in the first century. A couple of things I want to close with. First of all, I want to talk about how clear the gospel is in this passage. The gospel is so clear. There's three areas. Number one, it's, it's what we said earlier. Ordinary sinful people reflecting an extraordinary and holy God. Only God can do this. We have a lot of single people at Redemption Arcadia. You guys have your own challenging issues and I get that. You need Jesus, believe me. But also, how does, how does marriage work when now you put two sinful people together it's got to be gospel-centered. It's got to be rooted. People, there's, not a lot, there's not a lot of marriage texts in the Bible. Yeah, not maybe specifically dealing with marriage, but when Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else better than yourself, that also applies to your spouse. It works in marriage, right? See, marriage, a gospel-centered marriage is one in which you give up your rights because you are in Christ. Those of you in your marriage who are behaving like civil liberties attorneys, you need a little Jesus adjustment. I'm telling you. You do. You know all about your rights, but you have no idea what your responsibilities are. And that's a problem. It, it takes the gospel to do that. For people to persevere the way James and Paul talk about perseverance and, 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 and learning how to persevere and becoming mature and learning patience and, and learning contentment, it takes the gospel. Ordinary sinful people reflecting an extraordinary and holy God. Second, Jesus makes us. We don't make Jesus. So we should be thankful and live a joyous life. The love we receive from Jesus has authority and power. And third, the unity through diversity in the gospel is absolutely amazing. The unity through diversity. Uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians talks about how the body has all these diverse parts and every part is important and, and every part needs to do its job. And if every part was an eye, imagine what the body of Christ would look like if every part was an eye. That would be ridiculous, right? And yet we have people at church who, who will say, you know... If everyone in the church just saw things the way I saw them, if everyone was just like me, then everybody would get along. No. We'd be an eye or an ear. That's it. Any effort to homogenize the body of Christ is at odds with the gospel and it's at odds with the desires of Jesus. He loves our diversity and he brings us together in our diversity. He unites us in our diversity. That's the gospel. And finally, we are called to be with Jesus and we are called to be sent from Jesus. Both. Both and. Not either or. Both and. We're called to be with Jesus, to gather with Jesus. One author says it this way, discipleship is relationship before task. Discipleship is about the who before it's about the what. Uh, Sean Myers, when he was sent out to Peoria during the weeks before they actually opened, he was out there working and he got contacted by a guy who said, I want to help you with your church plant and, and everything and, and let's meet for coffee. And they met for coffee and, and 
Sean was listening to him, and Sean said, well, that's great, and all that all sounds fine, but here's what we need you to do. We need you to start attending the church when we open. We need to develop a relationship first, and then we'll see how we can utilize some of your leadership. And the guy literally said to him, I'm not interested in attending your church, just helping to lead your people. Hey, become a pastor. You'll get stories like this. People are odd. I'm telling you. This guy wanted all authority and power, but absolutely no skin in the game. We got to put some skin in the game. To be a disciple is three things. It's relationship, it's proclamation, and it's obedience. And all three are essential, and all three of those are empowered by Jesus. And so that relationship part is the being with Jesus. With the, with the bride of Christ, with the church, with his people. And we really need to understand this. Being with Jesus is the most important way that you and I can forsake the idols of our hearts. Those things in our hearts that are, that are worldly things, that are not even necessarily bad things, but we've elevated them in importance in our life. And so now they're getting in the way of our relationship with God and in the way of our relationship with others. They've become obstacles to our spiritual growth. Being with Jesus is the primary way that we get rid of those idols in our lives. And I will tell you it is a shame that the that 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 for some people they get one hour a week where there are no idols in their hearts and that's when they're at church we need to be with Jesus so that when we're away from church we know that the idols in our hearts are not taking over but then we're also sent from him it's not just about being with him we're also sent from him We need to be with Jesus, but we also need to be sent. We can't use the idea of being with Jesus as an excuse to not be sent from Jesus to proclaim the gospel and to obey his call to be on mission. I know some people, I need need another Bible study. They're already attending four a week. What what is a fifth Bible study that week going to do for you? You need to be sent. This camp I go to in Iowa, I I get to run into a couple of things that are interesting. Um, there was uh, one church, I run into a lot of church leaders there. There was one church, the leader was so frustrated, their church had been praying for five years about whether or not they should go out and serve their community. He's like, really? We should pray for five minutes about that and then go, okay? And, and then another church, they lost their pastor and, and uh, the guy says to me, he says, well, we're not really gonna call another pastor for a couple of years because we really just need to figure out who we are as a church first. And, and I just, uh, sometimes, this might surprise you, sometimes I say things without thinking, okay? But, um, I, and I just said, I, you don't need to do that for two years, you can do that for like 40 seconds, here it is. Your job is to make disciples, proclaim the gospel, love God and love people. That's what the Bible says, that's who you are as a church. Now let's do it. Eh, maybe. And they're at a Bible camp, y'all. <laughs> they're at a they're paying money to be on vacation at a Bible camp. See, see, we need to be sent from Jesus, not just with him. It's even part of our liturgy here at Redemption Church. Do you understand? Cody and his team put together this liturgy, this complete liturgy, that from start to finish tells a story. We first start with adoration of God and Jesus. And then we confess our sins. We come and we humbly admit where we've fallen short. And then we give thanks for the salvation that we have in it. And then we hear the proclamation of the gospel. And then we commune with God through communion, which we're going to do in just a minute. And then we are sent. He sends us every morning. And that's what we're going to do now. God, thank you for your word and its truth. And I pray that you would send us today. That we would be with you and sent. That we would be 
ordinary sinful people by your power and authority reflecting an extraordinary and holy God. We thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.